Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, as always, for a riveting discussion. I mean, hopefully I'm not overselling this. <laughs> a, an interesting discussion, to say the least, but I really think it will be riveting. I think it will be um, a little outside the box, different than what we've talked about uh, many times in the past. We've talked a lot about social justice and evangelicalism, but it's been hard to give sources. It's been hard for me to bring you to... Um, good information that will help you in a political sense think through these issues uh, from from a biblical sense from a spiritual sense from a theological sense uh, there, there's materials out there but um, it's been hard identifying who, who's a good political commentator who's Christian who has really um, underst a good understanding of politics and I think I found that person I think I found one person like that and that is my guest today Aaron McIntyre uh, Aaron thank you so much for joining me I appreciate it Thanks for having me. I'll uh, try to be riveting here. Yeah, you got to be riveting. I, I, you, you sold it now. I don't have any other option. <laughs> well, your podcast is super interesting to me. And I, I think like I don't want to miss one. Like, and, and it's very rare for me on podcasts. Like every podcast you have seems to be outside the box. You don't seem to follow the news cycle closely, although you, you do some things that are in relationship to what's in the news. Um, but it's always helpful. It always makes me think. And I know you're a Southern Baptist. You're you're a Christian. Um, I guess first question for you, because I know that you you work for a big media corporation. You work for the Blaze. Um, does your Christianity, in your mind, impact the way that you approach politics, or is there no relationship there, or what? I think it has to. Uh, there's a concept called political theology, which we we might get into here. Uh, but I think it's just true in general that our politics will reflect kind of our relationship with the divine uh, interaction with the metaphysical. And so I, I think that it, it's kind of inescapable, especially that our kind of values will be reflected in the kind of politics we pursue. Now, that doesn't mean everything is a one to one. It doesn't mean that the Bible has strict you know, instructions on what your trade policy with China should be. But I think uh, in anybody who has a proper relationship uh, kind of with uh, politics and religion understands that those things will intersect. So you work for The Blaze. I'm just curious because uh, the, the Blaze, obviously, Glenn Beck is Mormon. Um, I know there are Christians who work for The Blaze. I think Ali Beth Stuckey is there, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, but you, I, I don't know how to even phrase this question quite because I, I view you as different in some ways a little bit. Don't take that the wrong way, but you're, you seem more unconventional. I'm not sure what it is. Um, so I'm just curious what, 
what led to you being on the blaze and, and what what do you think you bring to the table that might have been different than some of the other uh commentators there I think it's probably because I went a, a very different route. Um, I, I have a background that has nothing to do with broadcast journalism or radio or or kind of political commentary. Uh, you know, I, I have a degree in political science, but I spent a lot of time as as a as a teacher, as a journalist. I worked in some political campaigns, um, and then I just started uh, kind of explaining political theory. Uh, I kind of looked at things that happened in 2016 and 2020. And I said, okay, politics doesn't work like I thought at all. And if it doesn't work that way, how does it actually work? And so I started looking for a lot of thinkers that I think were kind of off the beaten path. They're, they're not really your William F. Buckley style kind of uh, thought leaders in conservatism. And that led me to kind of uh, have, a, have a different look at politics. And so uh, I, I was tweeting, I was uh, doing YouTube videos and, and podcasts and such. And uh, I started appearing on on kind of more mainstream things, and uh, eventually the blaze kind of took notice, and uh, I ended up there. But but I think that's probably why I'm a, a little different there, uh, in the sense that my, my approach tends to be more about the political theory and kind of how things work rather than kind of reacting to the news cycle, which a lot of people do and is very valuable. It's just not my niche. Sure, yeah, and there's a lot, the market's flooded. There's a lot of people doing that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, in major media companies, I don't see a lot of people doing what you're doing. And and I appreciate that so much. Uh, when you approach politics, you, you said that you've been influenced by not your William F. Buckley uh, style. What, who are some of the names? Uh, because I, I want to create a list, too, for people who might want to read um, beyond the, I guess, conventional conservative names. Sure. So I, I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with with the kind of thought leaders you'd expect in uh, Republican politics. But uh, there's a, a lot of, I think, older uh, thinkers that, that are really essential. I, I found them by starting with someone who's a little newer. People may or may not be familiar with Curtis Yarvin. Uh, he also wrote under the name Minchus Mulbug. Uh, he's appeared on places like Tucker Carlson now. So he's a little more mainstream than he was when, kind of when I uh, first discovered him. Uh, but he is somebody who is definitely thinking about politics in a very different way. Uh, he was basically revivifying a tradition called the Italian elite school, Italian elite theory, which has a lot of thinkers like Gatano Mosca and Wilfredo Pareto, um, guys like James Burnham, who is a, a co-founder co of the National Review, was also somebody who was very heavily influenced by their kind of thought. And they had a very different understanding of kind of how politics operated it was um, a little more machiavellian in nature uh, less about how we think politics should operate and then the mechanics of how it actually does and from there i kind of fleshed out uh, i think a, a larger number of uh people people like bertrand de juvenile uh who are really essential people like carl schmidt uh who are very good at explaining how and why politics operates the way they do uh, we could probably go uh, for quite a while. Joseph de Maestra, another thinker who I think is really essential. But these uh, kind of thinkers help me kind of put together a number of different things that I'd never seen in the conservative tradition, but I think were essential for understanding uh, and having an accurate uh, reflection of how politics actually operates. So how do you can uh, look at yourself, like categorize yourself um, if you do that kind of thing? Are you paleo conservative? Are you dissident right? Where, where do you stand? It's it's hard to yeah it's hard to say because what what do even some of those labels mean right, right. the paleo conservatives are are actually a reaction to the neoconservative movement 
So a lot of people, you know, in the, the, the Pat Buchanan wing, I certainly feel a lot more uh, tied, I guess, to many of those thinkers than I would the neocon thinkers. Um, dissident right is one of those terms that I think is just anybody who isn't in the conservative mainstream at this point. I've seen a lot of people who are really adjacent to the conservative mainstream use that title at this point. And so, again, I'm not really sure what that means. I, I can say that uh, you know, reactionary is one that gets thrown around a lot. That's kind of using the the terms of your enemy. So I'm not a huge fan of that one either, but it probably is more accurate than, than some of these other ones. It, it's, it, it's more about, again, kind of looking at those tools of political observation. That That is more where I spend my time than trying to kind of classify where my policy positions sit specifically. I think, and we might get into this, but I think yeah. one of the main things that a lot of people um, mess up is we try to think of our politics ideologically instead of thinking of our politics as something that is supposed to reflect the values and traditions of our of our people and our heritage and our nation. And I yeah. think yeah. I think that's a mistake. I think trying to put ourselves in an ideological box instead of saying we do what is good for uh, those that we have been entrusted with, I think is a mistake. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I had CJ Engel on not long ago to talk about this and uh, just a political approach and the conservation of uh, identity, protecting the tangible things that we love. That seems to be uh, not the way that the conservative elites today think. They, they think in terms of abstractions and forcing certain visions. Uh, and, and, and you've been, I think, somewhat of a critic, correcting me if I'm wrong, of uh, the liberal order, the liberal establishment, classical liberalism will say this idea that there's neutrality. I think that's one of your greatest contributions, at least that, that I've gleaned so far, is that you seem to be saying a lot of the times there is no neutrality with these institutions and we should not try to pursue a neutrality between, say, Christians and the LGBT mob or something. Um, and and th this is something in seminary when I was um, studying to be a pastor, I... I drank heavy from this and I disagreed with it the whole time, but this is just what all the pastors at the Southern Baptist seminary that I was going to were pretty much inculcated with this idea that we should have a principal pluralism and that the gays can have their stuff and the Christians can have their stuff and uh, they can interact fine in the public square because we're committed to this kind of liberal neutrality. You say no. Um, can you flesh that out for us? Why is that not an option? Yeah, it's we were sold. Uh, this this kind of idea that we were going to set up a, a really neutral government that we're going to have this uh, public square which was open to everybody and there was never going to be any kind of ideological push one way or another we had this government that was constructed by the constitution and it would make sure that it kind of operated on its own in perpetuity without kind of the ideological influence of one side or the other and this would not only be the way that we ran our government, but also how we would also operate most of our public institutions in general education, even, even those that are supposed to be private, but obviously have a public role like corporations. These things were going to always be interested in something specific like uh, making money or making sure that we have the best roads or, you know, making sure that kids can can read and write and do math. And they're not going to actually instill anybody's worldview because we're, you know, this multicultural uh, multi-value milieu of, you know, of, of different uh, ideas that come together. And so we all have to be governed by something neutral that wouldn't impose one group's values on the other. Now, that that was never true. That, that was always very clearly not the case. The only reason that we even had the illusion of 
neutrality in our institutions is that we basically had a cultural consensus of Protestant Christianity. And because everyone was kind of some flavor of Protestant Christian, the you, our main thing was like, okay, we just don't want you to push your version of Protestant Christianity onto us. We want to be able to worship the way we want to. But we all had the basic assumptions of like what a Christian worldview would be. Now, maybe those ended up not being sufficient to hold together. I guess looking at our situation, you could say that that may probably a good case for that. But the point is, the only reason institutions ever felt neutral is we all shared a very similar set of values. And now we've seen that, you know, without the imposition of those values, by just assuming that those values would perpetuate themselves forever, we actually opened up a situation where other values took over those institutions. So because Christian values, because Protestant Christianity wasn't obviously recognized as kind of the bedrock, uh, you know, structure of our uh, of our nation and our values and our morality and our identity we then allowed other things to enter in. And that's why we're seeing, I mean, you know, I'll be far from the first person to recognize this, you know, wokeness seems to operate as a religion for this reason. It is filling that void and it is trying to do what Protestant Christianity used to do, which is become the bedrock assumption of morality. And it is so desperately different from what we're used to as being moral that our moral our moral visions have now become completely existentially opposed like they you simply cannot have a scenario in which uh, you hold christian values and also it's okay to mutilate children it's one of those things or the other they can't coexist and pretending that they're going to coexist is a mistake well, yeah, this is the whole debate right now surrounding even terms like christian nationalism where there's this recognition that uh, we, we we must have a Christian identity in order to have Christian values again, like we used to have in the public square. And if we don't enforce that somehow through even the arm of the state, if necessary, then uh, we'll lose it all. It'll, it'll all be surrendered to this kind of sexual anarchy. Um, a lot of practical questions. Christians being shut out of various industries. They can't even now compete in those industries. Uh, they're at very low levels, I would say. They're being disqualified for moving up the ranks in, um, in in different industries. What's the solution to this or solutions? Because this is where I think the conservative mainstream kind of lacks. And, and even I would say in our, uh, you know, Southern Baptist uh, elites who aren't as political, but even the way that they think about things, they're still committed to th this neutrality. And they don't seem to have an aggressive way or a way at all to handle these kinds of challenges. So, um, so I'm just curious, like what, what can people do to try to oppose what they see right in front of them? Yeah. I mean, obviously this is the most difficult part because we're in a situation and a lot of Christians don't want to acknowledge this. A lot of people even laugh at this when it's said out loud, but it's just true. We are in an, in an era of Christian persecution. Like that is happening right now like luckily we're not in the era where people are you know being martyred or anything but it is very clear that it has been it has become culturally and even legally unacceptable to be christian in many different instances you're not allowed to run christian businesses you're not allowed to have uh, a, a business that would select for christians in the way that a business now can and does select for woke people you know uh, radical progressives it is, uh, I don't know if, uh, you, you know, the uh, the pride flag that appeared on, on the set of The Chosen. I don't know if you saw that, right? Yeah. You know, Jeremy Boring of The Daily Wire was saying, well, it's not these guys' fault. Like, they're, they're required by law to hire these people. They, they can't tell them by law to get rid of them. It's like, well, isn't that interesting? 
that, that, that by law it is enshrined into the law that you as a Christian cannot operate as a Christian, that you as a Christian, that, that even a production making a, a you know, series about the life of Jesus Christ cannot say, no, we don't want a pride flag here. Amazing that the law itself enforces that ideology and insinuates it and injects it directly into your organization. And so what we have is a very difficult situation. I don't think many Christians understand. They, they say, oh, we should stay neutral. Oh, no, the law is not neutral, guys. The law is already against you. The law has already chosen that you are not allowed to be a Christian in public, like, or you're not allowed to you know, uh, associate the way you want to. You're not allowed to set up businesses the way you want to. You're not allowed to run churches the way you want to. This is already built into the law. This is already built into these institutions. You're not dealing with neutral institutions. You never were. They're now just captured by your enemies and they want to persecute you. And they are. That's already happening. And so we're, we're in a tricky situation because a lot of people who didn't realize they were even in a fight have already lost it. and <laughs> They don't even know. And so what do you do when you're kind of already behind enemy lines when you didn't even realize you were in a fight in the first place? Well, there's a couple of things. I think we can probably take, um, uh, you know, some inspiration from other cultures, uh, other other religions. If you're Jewish or Islamic and you move to a Christian country, what's the first thing you do to protect your culture? You, I, I, this isn't rhetorical. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I don't know. You, you form a community, I guess, uh, of like-minded individuals near you. Yeah, you live together, right, in small communities. We used to call them ghettos, right? That's, right that, before, right. that was an offensive term. It's, is that the people from the similar community with similar values would live together specifically. They would they would move into the same area so that they could have a, a certain level of political and social and cultural power to project in that area and control over it. They also usually set up separate schools, right? Even if you're Catholic, right? When you're Catholic and a Protestant nation, you had a, you had a, a you didn't need Protestant private schools because every school was a Protestant school. You needed Catholic private schools because if you wanted to be Catholic in, an, in a Protestant nation, you needed a school that would teach Catholicism and not Protestant Christianity. This is, a, again, also true of Jewish schools, Islamic schools. If you want to have a separate culture behind, you know, kind of enemy lines, like inside a culture that is either hostile or at least pushing against what you're doing, you can't let people who, you, who hate you educate your children. And so you have to find a way to educate them separately. Uh, you know, you tend to see people who form businesses and uh, mutual aid societies that work with their group. So Christians helping Christians, you know, creating fraternal orders that go out of their way to make sure that people are taken care of if they're canceled, if they're fired, if they uh, fall in hard times. Now, the good news is, you know, we already have that to, to some extent in the church, but I, I think that many churches don't understand that has become a portion of their mission is not just feeding you know the homeless or taking care of of kind of other members of their society you know in their their local community that have fallen on hard times but also taking care of their members who are actively actually being persecuted for their faith and not just those who are persecuted but you need to work to employ these people right you you should favor people you know who are christian and who go to your church when it comes time to staff your you know your uh, business to to put you know put people on your payroll like these are just really basic things about building community, but we've forgotten them because we just kind of assumed that community would always be default, that Christian, the Christian nature of our communities would be eternal. But we we lapsed. We we let the garden grow. You know, we 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 let it uh, kind of decay and and overgrow. And now we have to tend it if we want to have these communities again. 
Well, this will take sacrifice. This will take uh, in-group preference. It will take resources to be able to establish schools and then uh, help people who are canceled by the mob. Um, do you think that's one of the big hangups that people just, they've been used to kind of a cushy life and it's just like to get off the couch and to have to go uh, get involved in all these things just doesn't seem attractive. Yeah, hundred percent. But to be fair, like we've done this in a large, like that. this is why the church doesn't have the impact that it used to, right? Because we've outsourced so many of these, what were local community duties to the federal government. You know, these are no longer the duties of the church. These are no longer the duties of the body of Christ. These are now the duties of, you know, the, the, you know, the tax man collects my money. He can take care of these people, right? We've kind of outsourced a lot of that. Same thing is true of Christians on a one-to-one -one level. We just give our money to the church if we even do that. And then we just kind of assume the church takes care of all these functions for us. But yeah, we don't, we don't get to coast on that anymore. We don't have that option. We, we grew, uh, we, again, we kind of grew decadent sitting around, assuming that all of these things have been established by our fathers and our grandfathers and our, you know, th they were going to just last forever, but they aren't. Like we are the generation that has to bring these things back that has to, you know, rebuild. Uh, and we, we don't realize, and the problem is we didn't realize how far this had kind of fallen. But now we have to pick up these pieces and we're going to have to put the effort in. And yeah, that means a lot of people are going to be made very uncomfortable. But sacrifices want to be made. If you want your kids to live in a society where, you know, you don't have a bunch of, you know, trans porn in your kids' libraries, you're going to have to get off the couch. There's just no other way to avoid it. Um, so, so you're talking about the bottom up. And I would assume this would blossom into um, someone, someone had sent me an article a few weeks ago of some small town in the Midwest where... I guess a bunch of, I don't know if they called themselves Christian nationalists, but just really right-wing guys ended up winning some local elections. And as soon as they won, they started implementing uh, favorable um, policies for Christians. And, uh, and, and this, of course, I think it was like a hit piece against them for doing this. But, but that is the kind of thing you would see. Uh, yeah, it sounds it, like a blueprint more than a hit piece. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. And, I, and it needs to be done more. Um, that's 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 the bottom up. Uh, what about the top down? Because there was a controversy. I don't know if you saw this or talked about it, but um, a friend of mine, Josh Abatoy, had tweeted out a few weeks ago that we need a Protestant Franco and the Internet lost its mind. Um, there, there's a reluctance I have in a way just because I know authoritarian figures can can be deceptive. And also this might be um, incentive for people to still sit on their couch because, oh, you know, Trump will take care of it. We've already seen that. So um, what do you think about that idea, though? There, there is part of me that is attracted to it. I mean, so that rhetoric is sloppy uh, just because of the optical nature of it. Uh, a lot of people don't really understand anything about the Spanish American or uh, the, the Spanish Civil War. They don't understand that priests were being thrown like Frisbees off of uh, cliffs, that nuns were being murdered. They, they don't understand kind of the horrific nature of uh, what the left was doing in the uh, in the Spanish Civil War. They just know that at some point Franco um, got some stuff from uh, Hitler. Uh, and so he's a fascist. And so therefore uh, that that's the only thing you need to know. So th that history is is complicated and difficult. Most people aren't going to spend enough time on it. And so statements like that might have some you know, they're always just going to have a rhetorical baggage that that's going to kind of put you behind the eight ball. There, there's kind of two questions here. What should happen and what will happen? 
Right. And I am always more interested in what will happen. Uh, that's that's kind of the approach I take in my political analysis. That's why mine's a little different. I'm less I'm less talking about what in an ideal world would should happen and what's going to happen. So what is likely to happen? Yeah, we're probably going to get a strong man like that. That's probably going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be in the, you know, in some kind of near future or some kind of uh, long term scenario. But if you just look at the cycles of civilizations, Caesarism is a real thing. People look for when when the problems of society have become too many, when the oligarchy is out of control, when the bureaucracy has uh, grown fat and ineffective and the, you know, the trains don't run on time, it, people start looking for someone who can solve the problem. Now, that doesn't always mean, by the way, you get someone like Franco. Sometimes you get Stalin, right? Somet sometimes you get, uh, you know, Stalin stops the revolution by just killing everybody, uh, you know, and, and, and so so it's not always just some right wing guy. It could e very easily be a left wing person as well, though I doubt you'll you'll see the left wing emergence of a like kind of a blue Caesar in this scenario. Uh, but I do think that it is very possible that that could happen. Do I think you should be working towards that? Well, not really, because like you said, uh, it, it incentivizes people to just not really do anything. Oh, eventually, you know, someone will come in and swoop in and, and solve this problem. Look, whether or not a strong man eventually comes in and kind of just cuts the Gordian knot and starts, you know, kind of putting things right. You have a responsibility to your locality, to your family, to your church, to your city, to your friends, to the people around you. And so whether or not this gets solved in some kind of traditionally democratic fashion or whether it gets solved because a strong man kind of steps in into the situation, either way, a strong community that is taking care of those around it will be essential to kind of cult to cultivate the type of leadership and political uh, uh, capital necessary to affect either of those changes. So what, no matter how the change comes, the thing that you need to do is the same. That's good advice. Uh, when it comes to building these local connections in communities, one of the things that I've seen is um, if you sort of step out in front and are the leader of that effort, you will obviously get attacked. Uh, I've had cancellation attempts on me. I'm sure you can relate to that. And, and what I found so far, I think things are changing, but this was a, like maybe a few years ago. Um, I remember when there was uh, a, an attempt to really disparage me online and people that I thought were my friends, even people, if, if I name them, a lot of my audience would recognize these names from big leaders in Southern Baptists and Christian circles. They uh, visibly distance themselves. Right. And, and behind closed doors, I would hear the whisper, whisper, John, this isn't right. Uh, you know, we're with you. But they weren't actually with me. They, they would publicly um, do everything they could to not be associated with me. And, uh, and I'm not bitter about any of that, by the way, I'm not bringing it up for that reason, but I'm sure you've had similar uh, things happen to you. I, I think anyone probably who's advocating the kinds of things you are, um, has, I, I even saw just the other day, I think James Lindsay was going after you for some, I don't know, some Nazi connection. I, I can't yeah, figure it it's, out. It's James. It's he, every, every month or two, he decides that he's, he's angry that day and starts yelling at me from behind a block. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't find out until someone uh, shoots me a screenshot. But. Yeah. It was, was it Schmidt? I think it was Schmidt that you. Sure. You, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there, there's, um, uh, you've read, you've read political theorists who had, uh, you know, bad connections. Yeah, well, you know, Plato was connected to the tyrant of Syracuse. So, 
can't read the Republic. Sorry, he's he's canceled. It's over. Right, right. And, and so, it's, so it's juvenile thinking in my mind, at least. But this is what passes. And even on the conservative side, I see this all the time, supposedly conservative. They will try to connect you to something, even if it's like two, two or three connections out to something that's unfavorable and then use that as a, as a wedge to try to separate you from the movement. And, and I think this is one of our biggest challenges in trying to build the communities you're talking about, because everyone's always looking over their shoulder, looking out for themselves, afraid that someone's going to cancel them if they say something that's just one inch to the right too far. Um, I'm sure you thought about a lot of, uh, of this issue, about this issue. What do you think is the right approach? Like, how do we overcome this hurdle? Uh, I mean, it's a real one. Uh, when I said we were facing persecution, I meant it. Like, if you if if everyone around you is is glancing over their shoulder and whispering about, oh, you can't do that, you can't say that, uh, that's because you're in a state that is in control of what you can think and say, right? Like, people, again, uh, United States, land of the free. Uh, obviously, that's not true. And if it wasn't true, you wouldn't be so constantly scared of anyone around you figuring out what you actually thought. So I, I think there's a kind of a, a first need to realize kind of what time it is and where you are and what kind of situation you're in. But at the same time, uh, while the, we, we do live in, in uh, what, what is a, a different type of totalitarian state, we have to be honest. I mean, we don't have it the worst. There are Christians who paid way higher prices uh, for their faith. And uh, you just, you know, you got to find your courage, guys. Like, this is your time. Uh, you know, you you can't stand around hoping to protect everything that uh, uh, you hold dear. God, it was never yours anyway. It was given to you by God, and uh, it's his, his to do what he wills with it. That doesn't mean to be stupid with it, but you know, you, if you're sitting around hoping to never be called a bad name, uh, then then you kind of chose chose the wrong faith. You're you're in the wrong time uh, because it, it's going to come for you. Uh, I say there there are some practical things that you can do to kind of avoid this uh, to, to some extent. First, be thoughtful about who you spend time with and kind of who you, you know, th there are people who do want to be involved with um, kind of uh, these efforts just because they think this is the new punk rock, that they think this is the new edgy boy thing. You know, they're, they're going to get a lot of credibility for being the, the scariest guy in the block. Don't, don't spend time with those people. Those people don't have your goals. They don't have your values. And they certainly don't have your well-being uh, at heart. Don't, you know, spend time with people who genuinely want to build a better community and understand that these ideas might be necessary to do so, uh, but are only engaging with them for that reason, not because of their like edgy cachet. Uh, the other thing is don't be overtly uh, political when possible. Um, make your groups, uh, you know, um, community building. Have them do good things in your community. Uh, build a fraternal order that helps people out, that beautifies your area, that has the capability to fill a pothole or to, uh, you know, uh, uh, chain, you know, uh, repair a roof or, you know, do things that are essential to the functioning of the, the community and the area around you that do good and build social credit. And by the way, just happen to share the values that'll kind of align you naturally into a single political cause. And if you do end up running for school board or that kind of thing, then great. But like, just don't make it about your, I'm a, you know, uh, the whatever nationalist, like 19 letter, you know, political organization. Like, don't worry so much about your ideological labeling and name and worry more about 
binding together with people who share your community, share your values, are going to better the lives of the people around you, and then can move that into influencing uh, kind of the political organizations that then operate inside that community. I found this to be very true, what you're saying, uh, especially libertarians who have come out of libertarianism say this, where it's like we all shared the same label. We all shared the same approach, supposedly, to politics, and yet none of us could get along. But yet I do tend to get along with, with, with friendship with people that I am uh, have shared experience with. And my fishing buddy and I, I think, could probably run this town better than me and my libertarian friend who... Uh, who supposedly agree on things. And I, I just think that's an interesting dynamic. And I, I suppose that's how humans have always interacted. That's how God wired us. But we've somehow gotten away from that. And, and, and the other thing that you mentioned is we've gotten away from courage. And there's a lot of cowardice right now. I'm curious, uh, it, it, since you've thought about this problem, where do you think that comes from? Like, why do we even have this challenge in the first place? Because in my mind, like, I wouldn't throw my friend under the bus, right? I, if my friend's being attacked, I'm going to defend my friend. Um, if my friend made a stupid decision, even let's say, I'm still going to defend my friend. And I might say, hey, knock off the stupid thing you're doing. But like th there, there was a loyalty that used to exist more and it's less so now. And, and along with it, courage has been diminished. And, and I'm trying to understand why. Some, some people will say feminism. What do you think it is? I mean, there's there's a lot there. Uh, I think one thing is, again, that loyalty is to like ideology, ideology and principle and not to individuals. And so we can always that that sounds nice. Right. That sounds like a, I'm, I'm principled. I have a I have a loyalty to something higher. OK, but you're willing to sell your friend down the river because actually it turns out you can always shift your principles just slightly to the left. And now you're the good guy and he's the bad guy and it's okay to betray him because you're principled, right? And so you don't have to worry about your loyalty to an individual when it becomes in the, you know, inconvenient. Uh, you know, ideological um, definitions are easy to budge with. Uh, direct loyalty to friends and, and uh, family is not. And so I think a lot of people, because they focus on their duty to something else, something ideological, find it easier to then justify uh, saying, oh, well, you know, you crossed the line. You went the other direction. It's okay. I mean, look at all of the, um, all of RFK's family members denouncing him right now. Like, yeah. however you feel about whatever he said, like, I, you know, I don't really care one way or another about how you feel about what he said, like publicly getting up in front of the media and destroying a family member for their approval is gross. Like you are a bad person. I don't care what that person did, right? Like, like, like you are a bad person for getting up there and doing this. I mean, there are obviously lines he, you know, that 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 would be worth denouncing, but like that, like this guy did not do anything to that level, and you are just getting up there and destroying a member of your family again for people who don't care about you, who couldn't care less, but you just want their approval. And I think that's a big part of kind of where we're at because the social media mob has made personal destruction instantaneous people feel the need to immediately denounce right again it's all of the it's all of the totalitarian totalitarian control of something like a nazi party or a communist party oh i mean you're you're related to somebody who spoke against the party well a commissar is going to find out so you better denounce that person before they get around to you cuz they'll add you to the list right 
this is also true in our in our social media age. You know, somebody says something that you disagree with, even if you don't share their opinion, if you don't actively and proactively denounce them in public, then that could blow back on you. So you better get out in front of it. So I, I think that's part of it too. And I, and again, I think it's just uh, people have turned Christianity into something it's not. They, they they've turned Christianity into. Uh, something that's just a slightly more conservative version of social justice ideology. Uh, and so they find a, a real ease in kind of, again, just abandoning and betraying their brothers uh, because at the end of the day, their Christianity is not really biblical. It's just kind of a hodgepodge of things that are politically correct, painted over with some Jesus stuff. Well, of course, Jesus was in trouble for... Uh sitting with tax gatherers, right? And, and prostitutes and, and those, and then they wanted to repent obviously, but this was the, the accusation against him. And, um, we have something similar now with like, you know, you're connected to racist or sexist or something. And that becomes the, the wedge issue to try to separate you somehow from the pack and denounce you. And I, I saw the, the president, former president of the Southern Baptist convention, JD Greer do this a few, maybe it was a year ago, um, in a sermon, um, at the Southern Baptist convention, where he maybe it was two years ago, but he he basically said we have all these deplorable people in our convention. And he's talking about Trump voters, but he he calls them terrorists. He uh, he says there's all these neo confederates running around in our denomination, um, as if that's such a bad thing. I mean, I I'm not I'm more of a paleo confederate, but I'm like, what what are these people actually tangibly doing to harm your like the the the, the denomination? And and really, it's 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 nothing. You can't point to anything tangible. It's just to look good, I think, for the cameras. And, um, and and so this fascination with getting approval from our overlords is it seems to be one of the most pernicious issues that we have to face moving forward. And um, and one of the things you talk about on your your show quite a bit is is how to face this, what what to do, um, how to think about it. And, and so I, I just I think that's so helpful. Um, wh what role do you think ideas do play or principles? I'll say what, what role do principles play? Cause, cause I think of like a principled person is a good person, right? But you're saying, so, so, so show, show me where the disconnect is there. So I think it's very obvious, um, that principles matter, but what I think is dangerous is that principles. And, and again, we need to, we have to, in some ways separate our political principles, our cultural principles, and our principles of faith, right? These are these are not these are connected, but they're not all the same thing, right? So so there is there is some level of of difference here. So for instance, our cultural principles tend to be uh, organic uh, organic constructions of our folk ways, our traditions, our culture, our language, right? So those things tend to arise from the people and from their interactions with each other. They're not a top-down thing. They're something that is grown from kind of the, the spirit of the people. And so in that way, you're not really betraying principle. You know, like your principles should align with your social interactions. They should be informing and they should already be kind of an organic part of that interaction. Now, then obviously we have, you know, something like religious principles. Those come, you know, from God. So like that's not that's not something we get to fudge, hopefully, right? That, that's something that we need to follow directly. But it's, again, very easy for us to, when, when we have this interpretation game, align them with power. And it's funny because a lot of people who love to talk about like kind of how the church like might have aligned itself with fascists or something in, in the 1930s, 
don't seem to understand that the church could just as easily align itself with social justice today because that's what's in power. Like people who bring that criticism of the church in, you know, in, in say like the 30s or 40s, don't ever seem to bring that criticism to the current iterations of the church. Like right. I guess that principle that 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 tendency just kind of evaporated, right? And so we don't we don't need to notice that anymore. Here's the thing. In all organizations, disagreement is an opportunity to rule, right? Anytime there's disagreement, there's an opportunity to gain power, right? And that this this is seen most often when there's another source of power above that organization. So whether it's, you know, a fascist party in Germany or it's the, uh, you know, Democratic Party of uh, the United States and its woke agenda, if there is a party above the church that wields more power than the church, then aligning yourself with that power is a great way to wedge open and increase your power inside the organization, right? It's a good way to hold people accountable. The only other uh, to, to to the desires of that higher power. The only other option is to act as a um, resistant power, a competing power and authority. But a competing power and authority is always a danger to that uh, that power that wants total control, that wants uh, total sovereignty. And so it, that's a more dangerous position to be in. It's a, that's how people get martyred. It's much easier to chastise those in, inside your organization who are not on board with kind of that overriding power, the overriding party's agenda and say, oh, well, there's something about you that is not faithful, is not Christian. And so I think the key is, again, to remember where your loyalties lie. So principles matter, but you need to make sure they're your principles. They're not the principles of another power or another organization that has been imposed into yours for the benefit of those who would like to accrue power to themselves. So for instance, let's look, if we want to take a non-Christian example to like make this concrete, look at Bud Light, right? Bud Light, what's their, what's in theory, their principle selling a lot of beer to like people in middle America, right? Right. That, that should be the purpose of their organization. They slap Dylan Mulvaney on the side of a beer can. Now, if you wanted to destroy Bud Light, if you, John Harris, were sitting in a room with a cabal of enemies of Bud Light, <laughs> And you're like, how do we destroy Bud Light? Could you think of a better plan than slapping no. Dylan Mulvaney on that can? No. No, right? But why do they do it? Oh, they do it, I think, because they are they're they're playing to an elite audience that they think they can garner favor with and it'll benefit them somehow. Exactly, right? The 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 purpose of their corporation is ostensibly making money off middle middle America selling beer, but they'll literally destroy their stated goal to secure their power with another power, right? To secure their standing with a power, with another group of power. All these, uh, all these executives are terrified to apologize for putting Dylan Mulvaney on a can because that'll destroy their ability to go out and get a job at another woke corporation, right? And they care more about their jobs at other woke corporations than they care about the mission of Bud Light. No, that's good. That's really good. Um, th there's a phrase, uh, fraternity over orthodoxy, that I heard many times during the social justice incursion, which is still going on. But um, it was used to explain why so many men, let's say at a seminary, would all kind of circle the wagons. They wouldn't talk about the social justice stuff coming in. And the idea was, well, they, they're just loyal to each other and they're not loyal to the principles they should be loyal to. But, but, but I've come to understand over time, and it, this relates to some of the things you're saying, that 
it wasn't so much a, a friendship type of loyalty. It wasn't so much of a like commitment to shared um, living and, and or shared shared uh, uh, traditions and ways of life, but more of a commitment to themselves. Really, it was like this was a security ring uh, that would ensure that they their paycheck kept coming in and so forth. And so there was this kind of unspoken agreement. And, and, and maybe this is stuff James Burnham's talked about. I don't know. But like that, this managerial elite that where, where um, you don't see this just in the church, you see this kind of everywhere where they they fail to criticize those who might actually be able to harm them, right? <laughs> That's kind of a self-preservation loyalty. Um, it's not real loyalty. It's not actually even real fraternity. It's well, just- It's, it's yeah. fraternity that's not built on your commitment to orthodoxy, right? If, if, right. If, you're, if you were bound in your mission to orthodoxy, then you wouldn't be betraying it to, to stand against a, what is basically a class interest, a mercenary interest, right? If, right. you're, if, if your fraternity was properly founded on the right principle, if that was your bedrock, then it, you wouldn't be joining ranks and closing ranks to serve a different power, a separate power. Right, right. So, yeah, it's just it, it, it's it, it's a problem. And I would be curious to know what you think the future holds, because something's got to give eventually. I mean, people keep saying that the polls uh, that I keep seeing on uh, when they do them every once in a while on, on secession or revolution or when, when a pollster company has the, the courage to actually ask these questions, uh, the results are always like more and more inflamed of people who uh, would love to see the United States broken up or they would love to see um, just something really shake it up. Do you, what do you think's coming? You mentioned the, the uh, authoritarian figure, but like what steps would need to happen? What, what do you think in the immediate future is a more likely scenario? So uh, I talked about this uh, a good bit in a book I just finished uh, called The Total State. I just got the manuscript done. So if people want to kind of get a, a more fleshed out idea, that'll that'll be coming here. But basically, I would say that what we're looking at is probably a slow national divorce. Now, a lot of people throw this term around and they're they just mean like, you know, there's going to be some kind of secession. That's that's not going to happen. The question of secession has already been answered. Uh, in, in the 1850s, and the answer is that they'll never let you go. Um, and so uh, the, the question then becomes like, how how is this going to happen? Well, I think the very likely scenario, and of course, you know, predicting the future is always dangerous. So I'm sure I'll be wrong on some of this, and everyone can make fun of me. Uh, but I think that what is likely to happen is we're going to see complex systems fail. We're already seeing complex systems fail now, right? Have you tried air travel recently? <laughs> you know, like. You know, when we had the the uh, yeah. you had the pandemic, uh, obviously, like our our logistics uh, was just insane. Uh, we found out that we don't make uh, antibiotics in this country, that we don't make ventilators in this country. That if China decides to just stop delivering things, uh, you know, on demand, all of a sudden uh, we just lose large chunks of our essential economy. Like we are in a, we have globalized and outsourced, you know, like Rome waiting for shipments of grain from Egypt in, in the in ancient times. We have outsourced so much of our national security and well-being, and we have made the systems that deliver them so complex that they're very, very vulnerable to small degrees of disruption. And most people have probably already noticed that we're also getting less competent. We're producing, we're, we're selecting for party loyalty and not competence. Uh, we're doing this in our military. We're doing this in our education systems. We're doing this in our corporations. You can't have more complex systems with less capable people forever. 
And so eventually that stuff will break. And as that stuff starts to break, I think we'll start to see the importance of regional uh, leaders rise. We already see this with guys like Ron DeSantis. However you feel about his presidential run, he's obviously the best governor uh, in the country. Uh, when COVID came, he was able to push back against the federal government in ways that nobody else was. And I think that's going to become increasingly important as the federal government gets more and more insane with its dictates. And those dictates become more and more destructive to the people who they are applied to. And so I think you'll start seeing a lot of governors do more things like DeSantis was doing, saying like, well, we're just going to ignore that. That, that. Like, that's a nice court ruling. That's a nice, uh, you know, executive order. But uh, we're just not going to do that. And, um, you know, you're, you're not going to send the National Guard down here to fix it. So we're, we're just going to keep doing what we're going to do. And I think kind of over time, we will see. And again, we've already started seeing this. People sort themselves into the more competent um, and socially cohesive states. So Florida has already seen a massive influx like Ron DeSantis went from barely winning his first election to winning it by a solid like 20 points in this last one. And a lot of that is because so many people fled to Florida due to the COVID and kind of the, the you know, the gender and CRT madness. They wanted to live in a state where that stuff was going to be pushed back against. So I think you're going to see a sorting of competent people and, and kind of religious people with uh, similar values into particular states. I think you're going to see the, the federal government become more and more incompetent and unable to kind of force its increasingly kind of degenerate and uh, harmful will onto these regions. And I think you'll see the rise of governors who are willing to kind of run more effective kind of political bodies. Uh, and no one's going to come by and be like, you know, like uh, announce that this is the end of the empire. That didn't happen with the Romans either. But kind of just slowly but surely these, uh, you know, kind of these satrapies, these, these uh, provinces will fall out of the direct control of kind of the central authority and the ones that are more competent will kind of rise to the top. Well, that is the kind of thing that would inevitably you would think lead to because you already described nullification. <laughs> Basically, you made your order. Now, let, let you know, impose it. Uh, but that would lead to secession, I would think, or could lead to secession, I should say, uh, down the road. It's just not the next step, I suppose. Yeah, the formal formal declarations of that are incredibly dangerous, um, and uh, you just don't want to do that at all, or even dabble in that, because the the government is very clearly gunning for people who talk like that. Like, right. uh, guys, you need to be thoughtful. <laughs> you do not live in a free country. Act accordingly. Um, and so, like, there's just no reason to flag that particular talking point. Like, there's. Uh, no one's going to do that. Like no one's going to declare any kind of secession because again, that, that question has already been settled. But again, I do just think that like there will be a natural growing apart. And if that eventually leads to some kind of political like division uh, just naturally over time. Yeah. It, that does seem likely that does seem possible, but I just don't think that uh, sure. that's going to come anytime soon. Right. Right. Um Okay, so that no, that's interesting, and that's already happening. My brother actually just moved. Uh, I'm in New York right now, as we're recording. Oh, I'm this. sorry. He, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, he moved uh, to Tennessee, and mm -hmm. I think the church that I attend, probably five families moved to the same area, uh, and and so they've they it's actually getting to the point where they could like form their own church there. But there's already some good churches, so they've um, kind of integrated into the community. And I mean, he loves his life so much better than the stress. He was a teacher um, here in New York. And, and I just, I hear the story over and over. Um, and I, I don't know exactly, like I, I'm pretty, I, I encourage it, but like there is this part of me that's like, 
what happens to those red areas <laughs> that have like ingrained cultures when you have like we, we know what happens with illegal migration from Mexico. Like what happens with like immigration from California or from New York to some of these red areas. But it's inevitable. It's it's like being against the weather. If you want to be against it, it's going to happen. Right. Whether or not you want it to. Um, so anyway, um, well, we, we're kind of winding down here, I guess. Um, it, people can go find your podcast. Uh, they can go uh, to YouTube, I think, right? You're, you're on YouTube. Yep. YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, all those places. Yeah. iTunes. I think that's where I, I listen mm -hmm. to you on iTunes. Um, and check it out. Aaron uh, McIntyre show. And then you're on Twitter as well. So people can follow you there at Aaron McIntyre. And uh, I would just recommend everyone who's listening. If you want more analysis like this, uh, check out Aaron's content. It's really good. Um, any final thoughts that you have? Maybe something encouraging for the people out there who look at the situation and it gets depressing? Uh, yeah, I, I would just say, um, look, we we have a duty to God and we have a duty to the next generation. And um, now is just not a time for cowardice. Uh, we, yeah, things are, we're not, we are the, we have like the misfortune of being the generation that follows like the cushiest existence of humanity. So like everything looks harder by comparison, but it's really not that hard guys. <laughs> like it's, it's really not in comparison historically, it's really not that bad, but it does mean you're going to have to work harder than your parents and your grandparents probably in a, in a, in a cultural sense. You've got to be willing to plant the trees that you're never going to sit under because if you don't plant them, they won't be there for your kids. They won't be there for your grandkids. Uh, you probably will not see the benefits of what you're going to be doing now. But if you don't start that now, then it simply won't exist. So we got to get on our horse. We got to go. Like there's, there's just no other option. There's no excuses. So think generationally. Thanks, Aaron. Absolutely. Appreciate it. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.